although there are punitive aspects in Jewish law, the general paradigm of Jewish law is built around restorative justice. And the eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth are principles that from earliest time as we understand it, convey an aspect of the kinds of compensation that would be demanded. It doesn't say if someone beats up another, you beat them up. If someone sexually assaults another, you then sexually violate them. And so that we already have early on the principle of restorative justice that's framed in the Torah. The problem being that when you take someone else's life, there's no real way to restore that. And that produces the topic in Shoftim and also the problem for the rabbis. That cannot be restored. So what does one do? Interestingly, I wonder if we have that orientation at all today for the criminal justice system, or as I've been very moved, it's hard to find now, it quickly moved away from PBS, the PBS series Philly DA about the prosecuting attorney, the new district attorney in Philadelphia the last couple of years, Larry Krasner, and his reforms in Philadelphia. It's my hometown. It's always been difficult to be from the city that by far most incarcerates people in this country for a large city. I grew up in that city, often with district attorneys like Lynn Abraham, who were Jewish, who prided themselves on increasing that number with the idea that they stand for victims' rights. Is the orientation of the Torah and the Mishnah victims' rights, or is it something else? So I want to share with you some words from Mishnah Sanhedrin, chapter 4. For those who are trying to follow historically, the Hebrew Bible closes out a couple of centuries before the Common Era, And the next holy document we have is the Mishnah, which although published in 200 of the Common Era, nevertheless reflects the period immediately from the end of the Bible until the Pharisaic period, until until when it's published. Chapter 4 of the Mishnah. What are the differences between cases of monetary law, compensation, restorative, and capital crime? Well, cases of monetary law are judged by a court of three judges, and cases of capital law are judged by a court of 23, as Ari said. In cases of monetary, the Lord opens, the, the court opens with deliberations, either with a claim to exempt the accused or a claim to find him liable. But in cases of capital law, the court opens the deliberations with a claim to acquit the accused, but it does not open with deliberations or arguments on why to find the suspect liable. In cases of monetary law, the court directs um, the issues and the ruling based on majority of one, either to exempt or to find liable. But in cases of capital law, the court just, uh, directs the judgment based on a majority uh, of one judge to acquit and further to find liable. In monetary law, the court brings the accused back to be judged again if new evidence arises either with a claim that the suspect is guilty or a claim that the suspect is innocent. But in capital crimes, it is only permissible to reconvene the court in order to find the suspect innocent. Cases of monetary law, all those present at the trial may teach a reason to exempt a litigant or to find them liable. But in cases of capital law, all those present at the trial, all, including the prosecution, must teach a reason to acquit the accused. But not all present may teach um, a reason to find them liable. Only the judges can teach a reason to find the accused guilty. In cases of monetary law, one who initially teaches a reason to find the accused liable may then teach a reason to exempt them. But one who teaches a reason to exempt may not follow it by a reason to follow them, to, to find them liable. And it continues in this way. 
In cases of monetary law, the court judges during the daytime and may conclude those deliberations and issue a ruling even in the evening. But in cases of capital law, the court judges during the daytime and concludes the deliberations and issues rulings only during daytime. So what are the, some of the principles that we find that govern this, this, this court system in cases of capital punishment or capital law, capital crime? We find that the court is tilted heavily in favor, not simply of presuming innocence, but for arguing directly for it. The court does not retry to find guilty, only to find innocent. So the appeals process is about making sure an innocent person isn't found guilty. There is no discussion here of what we call today victims' rights. Those presenting reasons to convict must also present their very best case at innocence, why it must be, might be possible. And the Mishnah is well aware that other factors come into play when convicting, like the practical considerations of not wanting a trial to drag on. Hence, the trial must conclude on, during the day um, and not be rushed. I learned a trick. Um, I'm so busy. I try to be so busy as a rabbi that I'm, I'm always tempted to try to figure out a way to get out of court duty, but, I wouldn't get, but there are no good reasons for me to get out of it. So I learned a tip, which is sign up for court duty a day or two before a national holiday because they don't like to start cases. And if they do start, so you'll be dismissed. And if they do start cases, you can absolutely guarantee that you'll be done by Christmas Eve. They will rush through them so that they can send everybody home for the holiday. So I'm always available for court duty. I tell the court on December 23rd, and uh, there's never been a single person in the room who's been called from the pool to, uh, to actually get called for a jury trial. The mission already knew this. You can't rush it through. You have to continue the next time during daytime, and it doesn't allow it to be done prior to holidays. If you open the newspaper, I'm sorry, there are no newspapers left. If you read the news any day, you will find that these principles are violated. If you open the Washington Post yesterday, yesterday morning, you will find that three former Philadelphia homicide detectives who built a murder case that wrongly convicted a 20-year-old man kept him in prison for 25 years with the office of Lynn Abraham seeking the death penalty. The officers were arrested Friday on charges of perjury and false statements in a rare attempt, this is a very rare, by authorities to hold police accountable for actions which lead to false arrests and wrongful convictions. The detectives had said that Anthony Wright had confessed to the rape and murder of his 77-year-old laborer, Louise Talley, in 1991, that they had found the bloody clothes he wore um, at the time of the killing, they'd found them in his bedroom. They had a confession, which he had signed, even though he denied confessing. And even though DNA testing in 2013 showed that another man, a career criminal who lived near the victim, had actually done the crime. It also showed that the clothes that the detectives claimed they found were actually the victim's clothes, and they were never at, um, at Anthony's apartment and as Anthony home. So when the new DNA evidence came to light, did the Philadelphia court conduct an appeal to exonerate him? New evidence comes to light only for the sake of exoneration? Nope. After his 25 years in prison, Philadelphia prosecutors retried him for murder just a couple of years ago. Fortunately, the police officers made multiple mistakes when presenting to the grand jury for the new trial. Much of the evidence hinged on one officer's testimony that the details emerged from his, all the details of the crime emerged from his deaf note-taking while the suspect was handcuffed to a chair. But when the grand jury just asked him to demonstrate how he took notes in doing so, he actually had trouble completing one sentence in writing. 
since, we, since it had already been established that the victim, Anthony, had been handcuffed to a chair the entire night, and by all accounts justifying his story that he spent the whole time crying and asking for his mother. So Larry Krasner established a conviction integrity unit that is now led by Patricia Cummings. He's the new district attorney. In his short tenure in Philadelphia's district attorney, which has the highest incarceration rate by far of any major city in America, I'm quoting now from the Washington Post, it's already exonerated 21 wrongly convicted men since Krasner took office in 2018, mostly black men convicted of murder. Cummings unit has also been focused on seeking accountability, both in the Philadelphia police and in prior prosecutors' administrations. Um, the previous prosecutor, Lynn Abraham, from 1991 and to 2010, she proudly wore the nickname Queen of Death for frequently seeking the death penalty, and her office had sought the death penalty for Wright himself. More than half of all wrongful criminal convictions are caused by government misconduct, a study finds both intentional and unintentional. Misconduct by police and prosecutors and other law enforcement officials is a regular problem, says one of the deans of this topic, Samuel Gross, the emeritus professor at the University of Michigan Law School and co-founder of the Exoneration Registry. And as he says, it produces a steady stream of convictions of innocent people. And because the data for exonerations is gathered randomly from news reports and legal rulings with no central repository of statistics at this time, Professor Gross says, it is clear to us that misconduct occurs in many more cases than even the registry tracks. The new study that had been conducted digs into the reasons why these people are wrongly convicted. It founds, finds that 54% of defendants are victimized by official misconduct. Here in the day where the parsha starts, sorry, pointed out as shoftim v'shotrim, the judges and the officials, the officials who are actually conducting the criminal justice system, district attorneys, police and investigators. Um, police are involved in misconduct, 34% of the cases of exoneration, prosecutors in 30%, and many of those, um, both of those together. The study by the National Registry of Exonerations reviewed 2,400 exonerations. It's logged between 1989 and 2019, nearly 80% of which were for violent felonies. Of the 2,400, 93 innocent defendants were sentenced to death and later cleared before they were executed. The study also found that officials are rarely disciplined. Um, they found that only 4% of prosecutors had been disciplined and about 19% of police what that kind of discipline involved varies. Many of us are familiar with the grand, famous, and important Jewish dictum of the rabbis that one who saves a single life, scripture, scripture credits them with having saved the entire world. Few know, however, the context in our tradition where that midrash is used. It comes from Mishnah Sanhedrin in the same chapter, and it comes from the preparation of witnesses in a murder trial. Read to you just a little bit from it. What do you say to prisoners who are, uh, pardon me, what do you say to witnesses who are about to testify in capital cases? You bring them in and you strongly admonish them. Perhaps it is in your mind to state what you think everybody already knows, or something that you've heard, or evidence that you've heard other witnesses say. Or maybe you are thinking of testifying about something you heard from someone very trustworthy, 
but perchance you were not aware that we would test you by inquiry and examination. You must know that capital cases are not as cases concerning property. In cases concerning property, a person may pay money and make atonement, but in capital cases, the blood cries out. So you know blood crying out of Cain killing Abel and Abel's blood crying out. And here the rabbis reverse it. The blood crying out is of someone convicted of a capital crime who is not guilty. Remember the case of Cain who slew his brother. And it says the brother's bloods, dame, plural, cries out. It doesn't say thy brother's blood, but thy brother's bloods, because it is plural. It has come to be taught from us that the Holy One reminds us that a single person only was created in Adam, that we start with one, to teach that Adam represents all humanity. And when only one person is killed, it is as if killing all of humanity together. Lest you tempt to make possible the case where the blood cries out and there is, you have destroyed all of humanity. And if perchance the witnesses say back to you, why are we having to bear all of this annoyance? You remind them again of the Midrash and you say you could be guilty of this person's blood which would cry out from the ground. The Mishnah recounts that the death penalty of stoning was originally done, although we already find out that it had stopped. The rabbis imagine it where the two witnesses whose testimony convicts someone would have to do the deed themselves. The first one would actually push the person over from a high ledge and the person would die from the fall. And if that wasn't sufficient, the person was still alive, then the second witness would have to push a boulder over to crush them. Therefore, the witnesses would have to understand that they are responsible directly for a death and not assume that they can do so in a non-direct, anonymous way without taking it seriously. It's interesting to me that as I researched today's Devar Torah, almost every article I came across has someone saying, let's say Gavin Newsom in San Francisco, who tried to end capital punishment there. I don't believe in eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Somehow they always seem to blame Judaism or the Old Testament for the idea that capital punishment might occur, never seeming to understand the context in which it occurs and the tradition that elaborates it halakhically. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth was conceptual about restorative justice but we don't understand it anymore, given that our paradigm is always, quote unquote, victims' rights. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdov, justice, justice, you must pursue. But of course, tzedek, justice is only one possible translation. It's the same word as tzedakah. It's righteousness. Rightness. Rightness you must pursue. And thus it leads to the paradigm that we have. We in America look in the mirror, We can't stand what we see when it comes to capital punishment. But somehow, rather than seeing the ugly face in the mirror of America, we somehow blame it on the inheritance of a tradition that saw things in the exactly opposite way. The Talmud says that capital punishment was eliminated in Israel 1,994 years ago. 
I'm waiting for America to catch up. Shabbat Shalom.